Wow, there's so much power in that song. And um, I just know that where we are today in our world, it takes a lot of strength to be able to sing those kind of words. And that song was written out of a really tumultuous time in a man's life where he was having to trust God, even though he couldn't see uh, how anything that was in his life right then was going to work out for good at the loss of his daughters. And so um, just want to encourage you that uh, there's a phrase that Kim and I like to use, and it is that all's well and all shall be well. And that's when we place our faith in God and we place our trust in him. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the things that we struggle with in our world right now, some of the things that look so crazy. <clears throat> I just want to welcome you. I'm Ron Thompson. I get to be one of the pastors here, and it's just my joy to be able to come to you today and uh, fulfill the responsibility that God's given me to deliver his word and to do it in a way that we can all receive it and uh, in a way that is spirit-infilled. And so this is Pentecost Sunday, and so uh, we just love the fact that the Holy Spirit did come and brought fire down. And so I'm praying for some of that same fire in our lives today as we get to hear uh, God's Word. And so we're in this uh, series of messages, and we're calling them Stronger uh, Courage in Chaotic Times. Uh, I just want to ask, would you agree that we're living in some extremely chaotic times right now? Would you agree that we need a supernatural inner strength that's God-sourced to be able to face and to be resilient during the times that we're facing? I say, I don't believe it's a coincidence today. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't believe it's a coincidence today that we're talking about securing a stronger peace. Wouldn't you say that that's exactly what we're all wishing for today is peace? See, this week has been sobering for our nation. It's been full of violence and death. It's been full of grief and anger. It's been full of sadness and frustration. We felt those things. We've seen those things played out before our eyes over and over and over again. I just want to show you a drawing here of George Floyd. Uh, this was uh, the kind of the thing that really moved me this week as I was thinking about him. His death in Minneapolis this week has been the catalyst, or I would say it a better way, it's been the breaking point for a lot of what we've seen this week. His death, preceded by the death of Ahmad Arbery in Georgia, uh, has stirred the hearts of many in our nation to take a hard look at the racial divides that have seeded a bed of revolt against the ongoing discrimination and injustice toward a group of people who for no other reason than the color of their skin have been discriminated against and no injustice. I was challenged a couple of weeks ago by a pastor. His name is Ephraim Smith. He's a pastor down in Sacramento in our region. He's an Afri African-American pastor as well. <clears throat> and he was talking to us about how to respond after the death of Ahmaud Arbery. And he said this, this is an opportunity this is an opportunity for us to listen with open ears. He said, we need to learn to listen. To listen without believing that you know what someone who's black or brown, who has black or brown skin, fears in our country, in our world, what their experience is like. So after I listened to him, Providence brought a sermon to my uh, feed, and it was a sermon delivered by an African-American pastor about after the death of Ahmaud Arbery. As I listened to this sermon, I found myself honestly discounting some of what he said because I was judging. I was judging his approach. I was judging his words. I was judging his rhetoric. Inside, I was going, oh, come on, it's really not that bad, is it? 
I think you may be overreacting. And as I finished that, I realized that I was caught up in judging at that moment, believing I knew what it was like to be him and his reality or what it was like to be Ahmad Arbery, and uh, that I wasn't listening with ears to hear what it was that he was saying so that I could try to understand what it was like to be in his skin, to have his reality so I could have empathy for him. So I watched it again. And after I listened again, I sent it to the pastors of our church, and here's what I wrote to them. I said, one thing I got from Ephraim Smith was the need to really listen without judgment. Judgment meaning that I know what someone means by the words that they're saying as I filter it through my filter. It requires a different kind of listening. To listen as if I have no idea and can't even imagine. Even in this guy's, <coughs> even in this guy's sermon, I found myself judging his statements through my own filter. And I ended with this, wow, talk about difficult and unnatural, at least for me, to be able to listen with open ears. So we need to listen with ears that don't have judgment or preconceived impressions about what it is that we're hearing from another person. I'm trying to do that right now. It's been hard because, you know, I'm not black, I'm not brown, I'm white, and I live in a mostly white community. So I've tried to immerse myself and get proximate in trying to understand what I've been missing in the talk about race. The latest book I'm reading, trying to understand the issue of racial prejudice, is called mother to son. It's letters from a black mom to her two-year-old black son talking to him about the reality in which he was going to grow up in based upon her experience. It's been so enlightening to understand from another perspective. See, folks, as much as we may disagree right now with the way that the anger is being expressed, we can't let that cause us to discount the need for us to listen, hear, and respond with empathy and with action. I love the <coughs> mayor from Atlanta. She was quoted, I actually watched her say this. <coughs> she says this, what I see happening on the streets of Atlanta is not Atlanta. This is not a protest. This is not in the spirit of Martin Luther King Jr. This is chaos. And I love that she said that, and we all know and we see what's happening but I don't want to let us discount what's happening because of the chaos that we're seeing because of our judgment upon that. I want us to work to become people who listen because that's what our world needs. I just want to switch gears a little. <coughs> I want to switch gears a little bit now. I want to talk about another milestone this past week that was so sobering. This past week, we passed the 100,000 mark of Americans who've died from coronavirus. 100,000 people who've succumbed to the grips of this insidious virus. 100,000 families, families who've had a loved one's life cut short and they have no way for closure because, or to grieve because we cannot have funerals right now for our dead. It's sobering. Sobering when we look at our world right now and we realize that this past week we also passed the 40 million mark. 40 million Americans are unemployed and without work in our country. We've also heard that 42% of the businesses that have been shut down because they were deemed as unessential in this lockdown, that 42% are saying, we will not make it. 
we will not even open up again, more than likely. And we see the massive big chain stores who are already declaring bankruptcy and going out of business. Experts say that our economy, which means millions, billions of lives, may take years to recover from this intervention to shut down our country and our world. And because of that, the financial toll is overwhelming. But I want to say the emotional toll is extremely staggering. I read this week that in one state, 50% of the people say that they are currently depressed, anxious, overwhelmed, lonely, and hurting. The head doctor of the trauma unit at John Muir Medical Center was quoted recently as saying, we have seen a year's worth of suicides in the last four weeks. The chief mental health officer of Australia said last week that she expects suicide rates to skyrocket 25% in 2020 because of COVID-19. Folks, people are desperate. And people are dying from suicide, drug and alcohol abuse, and from despair. You see it in our children. You see our children are scared, confused, and sad as they are facing the loss of dreams like graduations and other rites of passage. So as you look at all of this, you look at race and racism, you look at coronavirus and all that we face there from COVID-19, you look at the anxiety and fear and depression and suicide in our land, you look at the despair and the depression and loneliness that people are fearing. When you look at that, it seems like if you were to look at that and you look at the economic things piled on as well, that America seems to be on the brink of collapse, right? Something has to change. Because we realize that the things we thought would bring fulfillment, happiness, joy, peace, and meaning, they are all being stripped away one by one. It seems like we're on the brink of disaster. Well, that is one way to look at it. That really is one way. But I believe there's also another way, and that's what I can talk about today because the power of Pentecost, the power of God's Holy Spirit coming into this world. I believe that America could also be on the brink of a revival instead of a collapse, a brink of renewal for the same reasons that we're feeling like we're on the brink of a collapse. That's why even though things are so difficult, I, hate, I, I listen to a song on a regular basis that has these words in it, and it's my hope. It says this, God has never failed me yet. He's never failed me yet. He's always with me. He's for me. He's in me. He loves me. And I trust him. Folks, if there ever was a time when America needed the church, it's now. It's now. We are vital to the well-being of the people in our towns and our cities. We're valuable to the men, women, and children of the world. Therefore, we will not, this church will not stop bringing opportunities for life-changing experiences into our world. I'm so grateful in this day and with the work of some very dedicated team members here at our church and the technology that we've been able to appropriate, that we've been able to make sure that our church has never lost ground in this instability. We've never lost ground in our ability to share the message of the hope and love of Jesus Christ to our world. Now, even though I can't wait to get back to life in person at church, 
I can't wait for that day. I am thrilled that more people today are actually tuning in and getting the gospel message than ever before with all the attendance at church buildings. More people than ever are hearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. More people are ever are seeing that there's a person, not a place, a person in whom hope is found, peace is burst, and joy overflows. So I just want to take a minute now, and I want to pray for all the things that we've talked about, but I want to preface it with this. I read an article this week. It was published two years ago in Christianity Today. The title of the article drew my attention and said this, the dead white man who could fix our race problem. It was written by an African-American woman, and she was reflecting on the life of Oswald Chambers, and this is what she says. She says, when race matters confound us, our biggest deficit, Chambers would argue, is in our prayer lives. This is what he said. We do not pray at all until we are at our wit's end. You've thought about this before, and people say, well, let's pray. Has it come to that? We have to pray at our wit's end. And then he famously said, prayer does not equip us for greater works, Prayer is the greater work. It supernaturally develops the life of God in us. And the Lord's life alone, not our brilliance, not our talents, not our tactics, will transform our race battles, all the battles that I talked about. As Chambers warned, the more you know, the less intelligently you pray because you forget to believe that God can offer the difficulties. Meaning the more we get sophisticated, the less we pray, because we think we are the source of solving our own problems. And then we don't turn to God until things are desperate. Well, folks, I'm turning to God today because things are desperate. I pray that it will become even more natural for me in the coming days. I'm asking you if you would pray with me every day at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., and that we would pray, we would go before God, because we believe that God is the hope and God is the answer and that we want to be part of the solution that he brings into this world. So I'm just going to take a minute and pray right now. God, I just thank you so much that you've brought us here. That you have every family member who's watching, every individual who's on the screen right now. Everyone who will watch this into the future. And God, I just know that you love us all. That you've made us all in your image. And therefore, because every human being is made in the image of God, we have a right, a responsibility to protect life, to protect life. And so I pray that we would live in that calling. I pray that we would become people who embrace the idea that we don't know everything when it comes to race, that we would listen to our brothers and sisters who have black or brown skin. We would listen to them, that we would put aside our prejudices and our judgments about what they're saying, about how we can relate or how we think we know what they're talking about, but we would truly try to listen with empathetic ears. God, I pray that you would help us to be part of the solution. I pray that you would help our nation to turn away from anger and from chaos and turn toward peace and turn toward protest instead of riot. There's a huge difference. You would help us to learn how to express our anger in appropriate ways, dear God. You would help us to stand up for what's wrong. 
You would help us to stand up when we see injustice. To love others, God. God, I pray for everyone who's been affected by COVID-19. It is overwhelming. When we look at the unemployment rates, when we look at the business that will go out of business because of this, because of the tactics that were enforced upon us that we might flatten curves, when we look at the emotional difficulty that people are living with, the fragility of so many people that suicide rates are predicted to climb by 25%. More suicides in four weeks than an entire year. Oh God, we pray for your mercy. We pray for your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help every person to know and understand how valuable that they are in the maker's eyes. God, I thank you so much for what you want to do through your church to express your love to everyone. And God, I want to pray for the families who have lost their loved ones to COVID or to racial prejudice or violence or injustice. I pray, dear God, that you would be with those families that they would know that you are there, you would bring your church around them, that they would be able to experience your love. And now, God, I pray that you would help us to listen as we talk about your peace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, folks, thanks so much for listening, and I pray that you will take what I've said and uh, that God will use it in your life just as he's used it in my life as I've wrestled with this all week, all weekend, and I had a sleepless night even thinking about how I was going to express this to you in a way that I believe that God would be able to use it and that the Holy Spirit would be able to implant it into your heart and make a difference in you. So I'm asking you to continue to pray with us. And so now I just want to take a minute and we're going to switch gears and we're going to move into the message for today as we talk about this whole idea of experiencing peace. So let me just talk a little bit about the series. This series is designed to help us grow deeper and our relationship with God, which will then help us have more strength to face the difficulties that come our way, the challenges and the chaos. So in this series, what we're doing is we're considering the names of God, the names that God gave himself that he poured out on every, uh, that he poured out in the lives of people in the Old Testament so that they could know him, so they could know his character, so they could trust in him. And we can still do that today. We're learning who God is and what he's promised to do and promised uh, through his words. They, these names describe him in words we can comprehend so that we can get to know him better. Now, our theme verse is from Psalm 9. Psalm 9 says this, those who know your name trust in you for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. So that's why we're digging into his names. As we know his name better, as we know him better, we grow in trust and confidence in him, which makes us stronger and gives us more courage to face life's challenges. So today we're going to look at a name, as I said earlier, it's about peace, and the name is Jehovah Shalom. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to Judges chapter 6, and the book of Judges, so let's just talk a little bit about that. It's set up in Israel's kind of season of ups and downs, different cycles that they would go through. It's best summed up toward the end of the book in Judges 21, 25, where it says, in those days, in the period of time they were living in, Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did that. Now, when it says Israel had no king, I think there's a deeper meaning than 
what we might think about as we read those words, that Israel had no person who wore a crown or sat on a throne. I think there's a deeper meaning than that. I think it could also be alluding to the actions of the people toward God. Israel did not make God their king. That's what the problem was. They didn't make God their king. And because of that, people were left to go their individual ways, following their own inclinations about what's best for me. And every time we do that, folks, it pulls us away from the heart of God. In the book of Judges, there's a series of um, 12 judges. There's a series of cycles that go on for 400 years, 400 years. But instead of telling you what these cycles are like and what happened during those cycles, I'm going to show you a short presentation from the makers of the visual Bible. It's going to explain it very well. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites. And eventually, the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually, Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. So I was telling the team that in order for me to do what was just done in 30 seconds, it would have probably taken me about you know, seven or eight minutes, and I could never have drawn all these wonderful pictures which helps you see what's going on. So here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to pick up this story in the cycle. So Israel has been in sin. They've turned away from God. God has allowed an oppressor to come. We're going to talk about who that is in a little bit. And they're moving toward this place of repentance and turning back to him. And then the deliverance. The deliverance was always a judge. And in this case, the judge has a name. And that name is Gideon. And we're going to look at how Gideon was able to bring them into a place of peace. That's what we all want to experience and we want to know. So Gideon was the man who became one of the greatest leaders in all the judges, actually, all 12 of them. And we're going to take a look at his story. So I just want to tell you first what Jehovah Shalom means. Jehovah Shalom means Yahweh is peace. You know, it's a double name there. We've looked at Yahweh and what that means, that God is self-existent, he's all-sufficient, and that he had no beginning, he has no end, and he has the ability to do all things. He will be, for me, all that he says he is. I did a compound names add to who he says and what he says he's going to do. And this one is Shalom, and that means the Lord God is peace. The Lord God is peace. So it was revealed in Judges 6, 24, which we're going to look at in just a little bit. But I'm going to read it right now. Gideon built an altar to the Lord there, and he called it the Lord is peace, which he called it Yahweh Shalom. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about Shalom. It's one of my favorite words, and if you've been around Twin Cities for very long at all, you know, I've mentioned this word quite a bit, uh, especially when we come to different seasons uh, like Christmas, and we talk about what Jesus came to bring when he came to bring this thing, shalom. Now, it's hard to translate. It's really hard to wrap your brain around because it's multifaceted. It's packed full of meaning. So when we think of shalom, we think it's so much more than the absence of war. We might think, well, that would be what shalom is. We, shalom is so much more than inner tranquility or inner peace. It's so much more than that. Shalom is so much more than the person in bell bottoms, long hair in a VW van. <laughs> oh, so I want, to get us to, I want us to get a sense of the fullness of the word. So I'm going to walk through some ways to look at shalom or maybe some synonyms if you want to use that. Shalom weaves together pictures of wholeness, well-being, security, 
prosperity, contentment, completeness, harmony, health, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, fullness, rest, absence of agitation, aggravation or discord, unity, a state of calm, fear from anxiety, quietness of one's soul. It means to be complete or fulfilled or lacking in nothing. All of that is what is wrapped up in this one word, peace or shalom. In short, shalom is the sum of all of God's blessings, which in turn produce a sense of well-being in every aspect of life. It means universal flourishing and wholeness and light. It means to live well. See how wonderful this word is? How great the promise is when God says he's going to bring his peace to you. That's what he's saying he's going to bring. I like to describe it this way when I talk about shalom. Shalom is nothing broken, nothing missing, everything as it ought to be. Nothing broken, nothing missing, everything as it ought to be. That sounds like the Garden of Eden, the place that God made where it was just like that shalom. We all long for that reality. And God says, I came to bring that. Now, as I said earlier, I'm just amazed at God's timing that he has us talking about a peace when things are in such chaos in our world. It's tumult. He would have us on this day talk about the peace that he wants to bring. See, God is the source of peace. He's the hope. Jesus Christ is the hope of our world. And so if we want to know peace, we need to know God better. We need to embrace him more fully and be able to wrap our brains around him and realize that he's inside of us. So we pick up the story. We realize that the people of God are in the part of the cycle where they find themselves oppressed, as I said. They turned away from God. And what that meant when it says that they had turned away from God, it means that they had turned to other gods. And some instances we've actually seen that they actually brought other gods into the temple. But it means that they went to, they started worshiping the gods of the nations around them. And the most common god was Baal. And the worship of Baal included some uh, very immoral acts that they would bring into the temple, especially sexually or abuse of children or even sacrifice of children. And so that's what they were doing. And that's what they would be into that cycle. And God would say, you know what? You're my people. I can't let you live that way because this is hurting you and your relationship with me and the world. And so he would allow oppression. And the Midianites are the nation that he allows to come against his people here. So God has allowed them to rise up against his people. They're identified as being so numerous as locusts, locusts in the field. I don't know if you've seen the video or pictures of locusts in East Africa right now and during this season. It's not a pretty sight. They're just everywhere. And they're saying they were as numerous as that. But they were not just locusts. They were marauders who rode camels. So you can imagine, you know, they were riding through camels as they did their, you know, marauding as they would go on their raids. Camels were their warfare transportation. So each year at harvest time, or each season at harvest time, they would go on pillaging raids to steal the crops grown by the Israelite people. In the process, they would pillage, they would rape women, they would take prisoners as slaves, and they would wreak mayhem. Israel was very demoralized because of this. It had been going on for seven years, and so they cried out to God, for help, and God answered their prayers. And so that's where we pick up our story today, and it's a story about a man named Gideon. So we flat, you know, come over to Gideon. We find Gideon, and he's a farmer, and it says in, the, in Judges 6, it says that he was tossing 
wheat. So he would um, have wheat on a blanket that he's harvested, and he would, a uh, typical way that they would uh, get the shaft, the heart, the shell off the outside of the wheat so that they could process the wheat, is that they would take it up on a hillside and that they would put it on a blanket and then they would toss it into the air. And as they tossed it, the, the shaft would kind of blow away. Hopefully there was some wind. If not, it would just kind of settle away from the heat, the wheat, because it was heavier. And so what, that's what he's actually doing. And we find him in a wine press. And we're going to talk more about what that means in just a little bit. And it was right then that an angel of the Lord appeared to him and that, with a message calling from God. So I think it's going to help us now just if we take a break in the story, if we can identify with Gideon. Right now, he's just a guy in a wine press. In another time, in another place. He's a farmer. That's not us. He's shaking his wheat. That's not us. But there's some things about Gideon that are just like us. And I want to talk about that because here's how Gideon had lost his peace. And this is how you and I can lose our peace as well. And so I would say it this way. Like Gideon, first, we need God's peace when we're discouraged. We need God's peace when we're discouraged. This is what it says in verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So the people of God were under this great oppression. They were discouraged about what was going on. They had tried to figure out how to live life so that they wouldn't get their crops stolen. And that's exactly what he was trying to do. So he's in the, instead of on a hillside shaking his wheat on a blanket, he's in a wine press, and a wine press would be underground, and so it would be a wall, and then it would be a hole, and so he's in a hole, and he's trying to shake his wheat. Can you imagine? It's not going to get the shaft off very easily. It's going to take a lot longer, and it's going to be a lot more difficult, but that's how they were able to make things work so that they could try to save their crops from the Midianites, and so it's a time and season of great discouragement, great, great discouragement. So imagine how being underneath this oppression for so long had caused them to be so discouraged. And I think that's something we can all relate to. We can all relate to things not going our way. We can all relate to circumstances that we're facing that are difficult and complicated. And some of those circumstances and difficulties have been going on for quite some time for many of us. Quite some time. And we can find ourselves so discouraged that we end up wondering where God is. And that's the second idea is this. Like Gideon, we need God's peace when we're disappointed. We need God's peace when we're disappointed. This is what it says in Judges 6, 13. It says, pardon me, my Lord. And notice that that's in lowercase, lowercase. So it's Lord in lowercase. And what that means is, is it's the word Adonai. Remember, we had that word Adonai. When it refers to God, it's capital L. When it refers to a a human ruler or master, it's lowercase l. So we know that that's the word Adonai right here. My Lord, sir, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. They were disappointed. Why has all this happened? Where are all the wonders? We want the God of old. You want the God of our ancestors. And what they were expressing here is they were expressing their absolute disappointment in God. 
and God. Feeling like God had abandoned them or that somehow God had not kept his part of a bargain with them that we would find in the covenant of the day. They were feeling that way. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel that way, and I have felt that way, is that you go through life, you hear that this is who God is like, and then you, you, sit, you find yourself in a reality that's different than you thought what God was saying, and you are disappointed in him. I read a book, I don't know, 1991. Uh, it was called Disappointment with God, and it talked about the idea of understanding that God does not work in the ways that we think he should. God works in the way that is for our best. And sometimes when we're in those places, it's easy for us to turn our eyes into the way we want things to be, and we end up being disappointed in him. Now, what I think is interesting here, there's no mention. There's no mention of anyone taking responsibility for, their, for where they're at and what's going on. No mention at all that they have you know, disobeyed God and that they've sinned against him. There's no mention of what they have done. At this point, it's all God's fault. Everything that's happening is God's fault. Getting his people didn't see how they were the ones who were responsible for their circumstances. We need God's peace, folks, when we're disappointed. Number three, like Gideon, we need God's peace when we're doubtful. When we're doubtful. And so we find this inside Gideon right now as he's being called to go be the one who would deliver his people. And so this is what it says in Judges 6.15. Pardon me, my Lord, Adonai again, but how can I save Israel? And then he goes into this litany of uh, ways in which he realizes that he's not capable. And so he has doubts in his own ability. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the weakest of my family. So we're the runts and I'm the run of the runts. And what can I possibly do? And so he was facing all of his hope in his own ability and not in what God had told him he was going to do. See, because of Gideon's view of his circumstances and his discouragement, and because of God's seeming absence and his disappointment, Gideon doubted at this point God's goodness for him and his people. I loved it when we sang that song today about the goodness of God. The goodness of God chasing us down. The goodness of God coming after us. God loves us and he wants us to know that. But when we put our eyes onto our circumstances and our situation, when we put our eyes onto what we have and our ability to change our reality, we can get doubtful as well. We can turn our eyes inside onto ourselves. So feeling that you're on your own though, it creates tremendous fear. When you feel like you're on your own and it's all up to you to make things happen, to feel your life is over, that you have no purpose, creates tremendous stress. So in the middle of all these insecurities that are going on, discouragement, disappointment, and doubt, God enters into this situation and he says, I'm going to use you, I'm going to empower you to bring peace to my people, to bring me to my people. So now let's learn how you and I can do the same things Gideon did, and we can learn from this how we can bring peace into our lives as well. First idea is this. I need to focus on God's perspective. I need to focus on God's perspective. See, we need to remember, folks, we just can't always see what God's doing. We have to remember all the time the phrase that God's God and I'm not, and I'm not able to see what it is that he's doing. See, what we see may be bad. 
But when God looks at this, he sees it is bad, but he also looks at it, he sees I'm, he's gonna prepare something good from it. What we see, we may think is good, but God may look at it and say, you may think that's good, but you're really outside of my plan, you're outside of my will, and so I've got something else in mind that he wants to bring to us. See, God sees things clearly because he's God. He's God and we're not. See, Gideon did not view himself and the possibilities that were within him the way that God did, because he could only see himself and his own weaknesses and his people and their own inability. And he was looking at everything else around them being much stronger than he was or they were. God saw Gideon through who he was. God saw Gideon through who he was and what he could do with him involved with Gideon, but Gideon can only see himself and what he could do and what his people could do. And so he lived in that place of discouragement. Verse 12 says this, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, remember the runt tribe, the runt of the runt tribe, okay? Weakest of the weakest. He says to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I can imagine Gideon looking around, going, well, there's gotta be somebody else here right now, right? There's no, gotta be somebody because he's not talking to me because I don't have what it takes to be a mighty warrior. So I just want you to say this right now. We live in a world where we can look at our own resources, our own abilities, and we can think we don't have what it takes. We don't have what it takes to do what God's asked. We don't have what it takes to follow God's call. We don't even have what it takes to make a difference. And I just want, to, want you to hear me right now. Hear me when I say this. God sees you. God sees me based upon his purpose and the potential that he's placed inside of us. And then what he does is he comes through the power of his Holy Spirit, we're talking about today on Pentecost, and he gives you the strength and wisdom and the resources to do what you cannot even begin to dream or imagine that you could ever do on your own. And that gives us peace when we're in the middle of our circumstances. So I read to you earlier this, a quote from Oswald Chambers. Um, I want to read another one. And this is from his devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. And it's a daily devotional. This is April 14. No power on earth or in hell can conquer the spirit of God living within the human spirit. It creates an inner invincibility. What a strong phrase. Inner invincibility. Can you see yourself that way? Invincible? Not outwardly, macho, you know, with machismo, but inwardly, where you know that you are strong and that nothing that comes against you, nothing can come against you, can harm you. Because you are God's beloved child. You are in the arms of Jehovah Shalom. And so when we know him, we can realize that he creates inside of us this inner invincibility. And that leads us to then want to live in a reality where we're trusting him and we go through our life trusting his perspective, not the messages we're hearing from those around us or the messages we're hearing from our past about what we can and can't do, but we're listening to God and what he says. Next, if I'm going to stay calm in chaos, I must focus on God's presence. I need to focus on his presence. I know right now, those of you who've been here a long time at Twin Cities, you're going, Ron, you talk about this about every week. And the reason I do because I think it's the main thing that we must get is being able to walk and practice in the presence of God, to know that he's with us wherever we go. There's never a moment when he's not with us. 
that he is there. But we have to practice being in his presence because what happens is even though God is there, he's not going to force himself on us. And we look at our circumstances, take our eyes off of him, and then we take the king off the throne. And we start to move in and doing things in our own way. So God's presence as Jehovah Shalom, it allows us, even in the middle of the fiercest suffering, even in the middle of the most shocking injustice, to know that this is never the final word, that God has the final word. It says in Judges 6, 16, I will be with you. I will be with you. That was God's promise to Gideon. But it wasn't just for Gideon. When you look at the story of the Bible from cover to cover, that's God's promise to every one of his people. I will be with you. Trust me to be there with you. And in verses 22 and 23, it talks about this realization that Gideon has that God is with him. And it says, when Gideon realized that it was an angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And then this had to be God's voice. God's voice said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So we get shalom through relationship with God from being in his presence. Tony Evans has written a book that I've referenced many times in this series called The Power of God's Name. And he says this, God is the one who who brings calm where there is chaos, stability where there is struggle. God is the one who brings calm where there's chaos and stability where there is struggle, but it's in his presence. Third idea is this. In order to stay calm in times of chaos, I must focus on God's promises. I must focus on his promises. Now, God makes several promises to Gideon as we look at this story in Judges chapter 6, and they go on to be fulfilled in Judges chapter 7 and Judges chapter 8. And one, one promise he made, you will be more than you believe you will be. You will be more than you believe you will be. And it's not going to be based on your power. It's not going to be based on your ability. It's not going to be based on your resources. God says, you will be more than you believe you can be because of me, God says. It's a promise he made to Gideon. And I believe that we can infer it's a promise made for us as well. Two, he says, I'm going to use you to deliver my people from the Midianites. I'm going to use you to deliver my people from the Midianites. I just want to ask, what do you think God's called you to do? There's a place where people are in oppression, a place where people are suffering injustice, a place where people are going through underneath the emotional heaviness of mental health issues and depression. What is it that God's called you to do? Where has God called you to reach out? Where has God called you to bring his love? And I just want you to know, folks, God has called every one of us, every single one of us, to bring his love to our world, to bring his message of love and of Jesus Christ and his love to our world. And there's a possibility for everyone to be delivered from the sin in which they live in. And three, God gave him a promise that he would be strengthened, that he would be able to do what he was called to do by just the fact that he would be with him. He would be with him, and he's going to deliver him, and he's going to deliver him into a time of peace. Judges 6, 14 says this, the Lord turned to him and said, okay, go in the strength you have and save the Israelites out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? 
I love this verse, and I, I use this verse so many times in my own life. Every single week before I speak, I allow myself to be before God in his presence. It's usually right before I come to the moment where I'm behind a podium or behind a table or now behind the camera, in front of a camera. I come to this place, and I say to God, God, I need you. And I, I just listened for his words, and it's this, go in the strength that you have. Go in the strength that you have. Folks, he's not saying to me, you know, Ron, you're pretty awesome. He's saying to me, Ron, I'm awesome. Go in my strength. Trust me. And that's what's so beautiful about Pentecost Sunday, folks, is that the Holy Spirit came to live inside every person who's in Jesus Christ. And every one of us, God would say, I've placed all you need inside of you. Trust me, trust me, and walk with me. And so when we do that, then we can have a peace that passes all understanding. We can have a peace that says in circumstances that are so difficult, it is well, it is well with my soul. Because even though I hate where I am, I trust God that he's with me and he will carry me through. And then it goes on to say this, it says, this was Gideon's response to all that he had learned from God. It says, Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abyssalites. See, that's Jehovah Shalom. And God always keeps his promises. It says later in the book of Gideon, I mean, book of Judges, it says this in Judges 8, 28. It says this, during Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace 40 years. Gideon brought God's peace with him. He brought shalom into the reality of the Israelites, and they knew it because he was a man who had God inside of him, who walked in the presence of God, who had God's perspective about the way that things should work, and he lived by the promises of God. I just want to share a couple more promises that I think are so helpful when we find ourselves in this place right now. They're from the words of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was here, he came from the presence of God, living in the presence of God while he was here, and he spoke for God, and he gave us these promises. The first one Mark read to us earlier from John 16, 33. I have told you this thing so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Master, forecaster, right? In this world you will have trouble. He knew exactly what was going to happen. But take heart because I have overcome the world. And then he said to his disciples just a little bit earlier in that final discourse, he says to them, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. See, folks, we need to recognize and that God is present, that God is at work all around us, even in the difficulty that we're in right now, that God has placed each of us in a place where we can have opportunity to be his hands, his feet, his salt, his light, his love, to bring the fullness of who he is into our world. We have that opportunity when we realize that he's called us to be ambassadors of peace because we love him as our Jehovah Shalom. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads in a minute and let's take a time to pray. God, I thank you so much for your word today and the power, there's always power in your word. I pray that you would help us today, God, to focus on this word 
shalom and what it means and the how much we want it, but not just how much we want it. I want our world to have it, God. I want our world to be able to experience shalom in you. So God, help me to figure out how I can come at my world in a way that is peace-honoring, God-honoring, love-encouraging, in a way that people will be able to see you in me by my actions, by my words, and by my thoughts. And God, I just want to pray again for our world that's in such tumult and chaos and pain and misery. I pray, Jesus Christ, I pray that you would show yourself. I pray that your church would stand up in the way that it needs to stand up, in the way that you're calling each church and each pastor to stand up individually in the face of the injustice and the discrimination and of the hurt and of the pain and of the oppression and of the economic breakdown and of the mental health crisis in our world today. If there's ever a time for your church to stand, it's now. It's now. And I pray that we would be true to you and we would trust you when we feel that we don't have the resources to do what you've called us to do. Now, God, I just want to pray for everyone in their home right now and under their lives. Those who don't feel peace. Those who feel alone. Those who would say they are in the category of being depressed. Lonely. Those who are looking at our world right now and they're frustrated and they're angry about what they're seeing at the anger that's being expressed. I pray that you would help us to know, God, how we can step forward in a way that we're part of the solution and we're not causes of problem. Help us to be the solution bringers to our world, to embrace you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.